1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for the Wednesday, March 24th edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. A lot again today to talk about the General Assembly is down to its final days. It's really getting more and more intense down there. The days get longer and longer as the session draws to a close. There are people on our panel today who can talk about that in great detail and we're going to talk about issues in the legislature. There are election bills that can very dramatically change the way Georgians vote in the 2022 cycle and beyond that are still under consideration. But there are some other bills that I'd like to get to today as well, um, and, and we'll talk about them. But, but I'd like to start, if I may, by uh, saying, uh, in many ways, uh, we're at a very exciting moment in terms of vaccinations for COVID-19. Governor Kemp has now opened uh, registrations to all Georgians uh, 16 years and older and starting tomorrow you will be able to get vaccinated. Let's just listen to what the governor has to say about that in a news conference he gave yesterday then we'll introduce the panel and get started.
2: As Dr. Toomey and I mentioned multiple times over the last few weeks, we would be moving quickly to expand vaccine criteria provided we continue to see increased supply from the federal government. That's why effective this Thursday, March 25th, all Georgians over the age of 16 will be eligible for the COVID-19 vaccination. As you all know, this is our ticket back to normal. And we're getting closer to that point every single day. So, again, I want to encourage you to go ahead and sign up today and be ready for the expanded eligibility on Thursday.
1: Um, So, Governor Kemp, making that announcement, Georgia becomes one of the few states that has opened vaccination to all uh, adults. And um, I I do want to point out that from our personal experience in my household, it's been pretty easy to acquire appointments uh, on the website, uh, especially down at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, where they're doing up to 6,000 and more vaccines a day. So if you haven't had a chance to check for a vaccine, an appointment, today is a great day, <coughs> excuse me, to start doing that. All right, all that said, let's get to our panel and uh, begin our conversation. It's Wednesday, which means the AJC's political reporter, Greg Bluestein is here. He not only covers Georgia politics day in and day out, but he's also working crazily hard on a new book on the 2020 election cycle, and Greg, we're always interested in hearing how that book is coming.
3: I'm a little over halfway done right now, all and right. so all's good, but- You know, still very busy on the the day job. And yesterday was just uh, one of those moments where in the middle of that press conference, I walked back to talk to a senior um, aide for Governor Kemp. And I just said a year ago, I was sitting here writing about how you were about to enforce all sorts of new coronavirus restrictions. And now we're writing about how the floodgates have opened for um, new vaccine shots. I mean, it's just amazing what a year, what a year it's been.
1: It, it certainly has been, and we will talk more about that in just a minute. Um, we're really glad that Mayor Julie Smith, the mayor of Tifton, is back with us today. Uh, Julie, thank you so much for joining us. How is vaccination, uh, How are the vaccinations going down your way? Are people eager to get them? Are they readily available? I know kind of right down the road from you in Albany, the state closed down its vaccination site because of lack of demand. How are things in Tifton?
2: Things in kitchen are going great, and thank you so much for the invitation. It's always an honor to be with you and, and the fellow panelists. Uh, really enjoy the time we spend together. But our, we, we have been very fortunate. Southwell, which is our uh, regional hospital here, Tick Regional Hospital, has done an incredible job with making the vaccine, uh, appointments for the vaccine, very easy to get. Um they have just—they've got a mobile vaccination site. Several of our pharmacies here are offering the vaccination, so it's really been very positive and it's been uh, very simple, from what I understand. I've not really heard of any issues or challenges. Um, We've vaccinated—I uh, think the latest number was a little over 11,000 people in our area, and that's that's significant. So, hats off to Governor Kemp and uh, and his administration for making this available to all Georgians, now all adults. And I really encourage
1: everyone to participate and to take advantage of that. Okay. Um, We'll have more to talk about in terms of what's going on down there in Tifton and Tift County, especially in terms of some of the legislation up there. And we'll get to some of that during the show today. Uh, Riley Bunch is here. She, of course, is a statehouse reporter for CNHI News, which has newspapers in smaller cities across the state, although not so small. You know, Valdosta, uh, pretty a big city is one example of the of, of the cities in which your papers appear Dalton I think is another uh, CNHI newspaper town right Riley how are things going down to the Capitol? you're you've got to be tired
0: Oh yeah I mean we're uh, they're not meeting today so that is a little bit of a welcome break even though we have committees scheduled back to back to back <laughs> they, up until sign die but um, you know just to echo. Greg's point think about how covid and the elections have changed where we're at even in the legislature this year it's it's pretty shocking to see things that you know we didn't expect to be debated being debated and all these changes that we didn't expect that we're seeing in um, proposals so it's it's been crazy and there's more craziness to come
1: <laughs> yes Jeremiah Olney is uh, with us he's a democratic. Political consultant and and works at Paramount Consulting, the firm founded by our uh, good friend Theron Johnson. Um, Jeremiah, thank you for being with us. Jeremiah, you know, um, as the Democrat on the panel today, Governor Kemp has taken an, a pretty fair amount of criticism, both in the media here, including on this show, and nationally. Uh, because George's vaccine rollout was so slow at first. I mean, we were last in the country in terms of shots in arms, given the supplies that we had per 100,000 people. Um, but at this point, if the state is able to uh, really get people vaccinated as they uh, launch this huge expansion without too many difficulties,
4: he's going he's to uh, reap some very positive benefits, Jeremiah. I don't actually know if I'd agree with that. I think the kindest way I would describe the vaccine rollout in Georgia is abject failure. I mean, I think a lot of the folks who managed to get the vaccine so far have been people who are able to sit behind a computer and go through every single different provider trying to find an appointment. I mean, you've got hundreds of providers actually giving vaccines and thousands of people who are registered to give vaccines. So the people who really need the vaccines, people like essential workers, teachers, they haven't really been able to get them yet. A lot of them, and I'm actually where it's actually about to get a lot harder for them to get them now that everybody has access <coughs> to these sign-up websites, especially given the shortages that are still happening around Metro Atlanta, where again the need is very critical.
1: Okay, so I think it remains to be seen how this dramatic expansion will work out. I mean, I, I don't think you get an argument, certainly from me, about the problems in the past. I do want to point out some figures. ...that are worth uh, Greg Bluestein commenting on in terms of people vaccinated. And it relates to something that Jeremiah was saying. We know, according to the Department of Public Health, that 1.2 million white Georgians have now had vaccines. The numbers for African-American Georgians, 418,000. Now, African-Americans represent just 31% of the state population... My math is really abysmal, so I don't really know what to make of that 418,000 compared to uh, 1.2 million. Somebody out there and who's listening can probably tell me whether that's a decent percentage or not. I don't know, but Asian participation in the virus only 91,000 uh, Asian uh, Amer- uh, Georgians of Asian. Uh, background have gotten the virus. So there there are disparities still happening, as Jeremiah points out, and it's something that's got to be addressed for the good of
4: the state. <clears> there's <throat> yeah, systemic. Just, uh, sorry, go ahead. Hey, just go say that's me. about 13% of the vaccines that have been given out have been given to African-Americans. Yeah, look,
3: there's still systemic inequities going on. Um, uh, state officials have talked about it. Um, leading politicians from both sides of the aisle have talked about uh, reaching hard-to-reach populations, uh, including down in, in the mayor's neck of the woods, uh, in in rural areas across Georgia. Um, the other day, they all Benny mass vaccination site had to close just because there was not enough demand. In Savannah, they actually converted their mass vaccination site to walk-up, no appointment only, um, because folks are, uh, 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 you know, there, there's there's not enough appointment demand going on right there, um, and so. And also, the other thing the governor has talked about is, is how white Republicans, especially those south of the Nat Line, south of Macon, um, have been very vaccine hesitant. So the state has an enormous challenge. Meanwhile, Metro Atlanta, it's very hard, even with the with the Mercedes-Benz site, it's very hard for many people to still sign up for vaccines. And so you're seeing those um, Metro Atlantans drive to all over the state hours away. And, of course, that that benefits people with means to be able to take off hours from work and to be mobile.
0: You know, I would just jump in right. and echo what, yeah, exactly what Greg said. And also add that I think there's a lot of hesitancy in rural areas because of how, you know, healthcare plays out in that part of the state. I was thinking about this the other night. There's obviously the political factor of it um, for conservatives in rural areas hesitant to get the vaccine. But rural healthcare in Georgia has also been a significant challenge for a really, really long time. And hospitals have closed time and time and again. And in the communities where they don't have, this access to healthcare. They have a hospital that they trust, and they know that it's it's pretty. Um, it's clear that there is going to be some vaccine hesitancy, so I, I think it's important to mention that kind of socioeconomic factor of um, the disparity of healthcare access across the state.
1: Uh, Mayor Smith, you're surrounded by uh, big red chunks of the state in rural Georgia down there. Um, are you seeing? Uh, you said that in the city of Tifton, you're having pretty good response to people wanting to get vaccinated. Um, what are you seeing as you uh, listen to people outside who are uh, more inclined to be uh, Republican voters, more skeptical about the uh, rollout of the vaccine?
2: Right. And and I want to go back and, and uh, just comment on uh, Greg and Jeremiah and Riley's comments. You know, there is unfortunately a significant amount of distrust from minority communities to government. And so when the government comes forward and says, we have this for you. It's there's that hesitancy just because of the deliver of the message. It's not necessarily the message. It's who is presenting the message. So it's really unfortunate. I look at, you know, I have a sister who lives in the metro area. Um, she's, uh, has a disability and had, she could not get an appointment to get the vaccine in her area. So I brought her down to South Georgia and, um, she and her husband were able to come through and, And, um, you know, that's that's the frustrating part is we have, um, you know, we have that ability to provide the vaccine in these smaller rural areas. And it's there. And now that the governor has opened it up to all adults, um, I think it's I think it's 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 up to the local government to encourage participation in that. Um, I think that those delivering the message need to reflect the appearance of those that need to hear the message. So um, so making sure that our African-American community is engaged, our Asian community is engaged, our Hispanic community is engaged, and people within those communities who are heard and respected and known are, are sharing that message, I think is going to be really important. So um, so I, I feel as a, a local elected official, it's up to me to reach out to those uh, representatives of those communities that I know, and that their neighborhoods know, and encourage them to share that message. I think that's how we get the word across Georgia.
4: Jeremiah, I mean, I, I think that it would be great if local governments could kind of, you know, take the lead now. That's opening up to everybody in the state, but I don't know that this is going to be a, an effective role. rollout say a very strong centralized state response because. There's no restriction on who can get the vaccine in what county. It doesn't matter if you're in Fulton County or Gwinnett County. You can get the vaccine in any of Georgia's 159 counties. So you don't have a system that is run from the middle, from the center of the state that says, here are the vaccines available. Here's how you make your appointment. You're going to end up with the same problem of people going through 100 different systems trying to find vaccines. I've been getting emails from the sort of State Board of Health through their My vaccine Georgia sign-up. And they'll say appointments are not available. Then I log in and there are no appointments on 100 miles. So there's really no consistency here, unfortunately. Um, All right. You know,
1: we're going to watch how this unfolds again. Jeremiah, I don't think there's any argument that it has been incredibly difficult, especially in metro Atlanta, to get vaccinate uh, and vaccine appointments from the start of the rollout. I certainly struggled um, to get my two appointments. And I obviously so did many people who were in my older age group who were uh, eligible for them from the start. Uh, But as I said, family members of mine, as of last night, very easily got on the site that was booking uh, appointments at Mercedes-Benz Stadium and had absolutely no trouble getting appointments at all. So it's going to be interesting to watch how this works. And Greg, from a political point of view, Governor uh, Kemp has a lot riding on his ability to be able to do this uh, effectively.
3: Yeah, and look, Stacey Abrams, his likely opponent, um, just a few days ago launched through some of her, two of her startup groups, uh, a new campaign to try to get some of these harder to reach Georgians uh, vaccinated people living in harder to reach populations um, and so that's going to be a, that was basically telegraphing this is going to be a campaign issue next year of course hopefully by next year this will be somewhat of a distant memory and that the, the me- vast majority of the population will be vaccinated and we can we can move on with our lives
1: yeah um, that that's exactly right um, I want to make one a, a point Before we move past this subject, which we'll be returning to as people begin trying to get these vaccines uh, starting tomorrow, yesterday I made a comment that a lot of you corrected me on. And I just want to thank you for that. I said yesterday on the show that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was basically unavailable in Georgia right now. And there was something of a mystery, not just in Georgia, but around the country as to why so few doses of Johnson & Johnson uh, have gotten out and that Georgia was one of the states that didn't have them. Well, fortunately, you all correct me a lot of times when I make mistakes, which happens rather frequently on this show. <laughs> a number of you said, my brother got Johnson & Johnson, veterans hospitals are giving Johnson & Johnson. But here's, here's I looked this up. So although I was wrong, I'm not all that wrong. Moderna has now distributed million doses in Georgia, Pfizer 2 million, Johnson & Johnson has now sent 100,000 doses to Georgia. So, Greg, I was wrong, but we are still wondering why Johnson & Johnson's delivery here and around the country is so slow. It's the one-shot vaccine. It has the easiest storage requirements. They've got to get that vaccine moving.
3: They do. And look, remember, they were also the third to be um, uh, sanctioned, the third to be approved by the FDA. So it, the the ramp up has been slower going than the other two that were approved earlier. But also the state prioritized them for for teachers at first, too. So um, uh, the first batch of doses were given primarily to public school teachers a few weeks ago.
1: OK, um, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about what's happening down at the state capitol. And um, uh, Riley, why don't we take a crack at what's going on with, these, with the election bills? It, it strikes me there's some good news and bad news around what's happening with the election measures, all promoted by Republicans. Uh, on the positive side, uh, there's not going to be any longer. They've eliminated the restriction against Sunday voting, which preserves souls to the polls, so important to the black communities across the state. They've also uh, said, yes, we will continue no-excuse absentee balloting, which was a huge, huge controversy, especially among Democrats. Um, They've actually, after contracting uh, early voting days, they've added the potential for a second Saturday voting day. So those are some of the the positive uh, moves, I think we would have to say. But some of the worst aspects of the bill – are still in there, and, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about what we're looking at.
0: Yeah, so it's it's kind of hard to keep a track of, you know, where these bills are moving. You know, do you want me to talk about the bills we're seeing today, or do you want me to talk about the bills we're seeing yesterday? <laughs> but, you know, right now yeah. we still have House Bill 531, um, which we've seen from the beginning, and we have Senate Bill 202 that was um, recently a new vehicle for a lot of these changes. And like you said, we have seen some paring down of the um, stipulations and proposals within the bill. I think, uh, which is pretty evident in uh, Majority Leader Mike Dugan's comments the other day in committee, Republicans are really seeing the impact of those extreme strict changes on the um, reputation of the state, uh, especially, you know, so we had this huge, huge, huge outcry that some of those more egregious changes caused. So I think that plays a lot into a little bit of the paring down, but we still have you know, ID requirements for absentee ballot applications, one that is of great concern um, for rural areas, as well as this limitation on drop boxes, right, um, which was largely instituted to help um, uh, deal with the challenges presented by the pandemic. And it was widely, uh, you know, a, a positive thing for voters to use to, you um, Help protect their safety. Um, you know, this we have seen an expansion of the early voting hours um, after the, the uproar that you know getting rid of the Sunday early voting day um, had. You know, saw because of its impact on the Black voting community. We are seeing Sunday voting as an option now, which counties can. Um, they can institute if they so choose. And I think another important thread that isn't mentioned a lot about these bills, um, but we should keep an eye on as they move forward, is this kind of power shift the legislature is trying to do between um, the state election board, between the secretary of state and the county boards of officials. So there are quite a number of provisions that give the state legislature more control over decisions that are being made. It's stripped, um, one of the bills strips secretary of state as the chairman of the election board. You know, it's kind of this giving more power to the legislature over the voting um, process in Georgia. And I think that's something we'll have to keep an eye on because it's not really spotlighted as much as some of these other proposals in it.
1: Uh, Jeremiah, what are the specific, again, um, this is a moving target, we know, uh, but what are the the provisions that Democrats are most concerned about trying to get out of these bills as of Wednesday this week?
4: I mean, I think state or county election boards did a great job in this past election season of expanding the vote in ways and very innovative ways, particular ballot drop boxes, I think did a great job of expanding the vote because there's no time limit on them. You can drop it off any time convenient locations. That's not the case when you have to vote in person. You have a very specific time frame, always during the working day, even during the early voting period. A lot of people can't show up to vote then. But if you get your ballot, you take your time to look at it, then you can drop it off a Dropbox till the last day. That is a wonderful thing. And the fact that they're trying to get rid of that is very concerning. And I think makes it very blatantly obvious what these bills are intended to do, which is to reduce access to voting and limit the number of voters in an election. And it's no surprise that they waited until after they lost a couple of elections to decide, you know what, maybe we need to change this whole voting thing up. But I think most concerning are the ones that they did take out, but that really show their hands. Things like trying to eliminate Sunday voting. I mean, there is absolutely no logical argument for why you get rid of Sunday voting unless you're specifically surgically targeting souls to the polls and black voters. And then even as simple things like banning people from giving out free food and lines uh, at voting places. I mean, what is the rationale for doing that? And because you only have lines in, you know, metro Atlanta counties for the most part that are very busy with a lot of voters that often don't have enough polling places to handle all of those voters, Why would you want people to stand in three hours going in line going hungry? I mean, it's not like people are out here giving away pizza and saying, hey, vote for my candidate. They're saying, here, you're starving. You're trying to exercise your right to vote. We appreciate you. Please do that. Please don't leave. I mean, there is no reason to remove that unless you're trying to harm voter participation.
1: Mayor Smith, we understand that, obviously, uh, down in your neck of the woods, uh, elections are a a function of the county, of Tift County, not the city of Tifton. But I'm curious as to your thinking about some of these moves that would, in fact, allow the state to jump in and uh, replace a local county election board, at least in a given election, if they believe they're underperforming in some way. What, what is your sense of this notion of state intervention with a county uh, election board? Uh, what is that going to mean?
2: Well, it's, it's very disturbing. Um you know, voting is, is it's our basic right. It's 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 what it's our what our democracy is founded upon. And so, you know, it's my understanding that following all the accusations about fraud and all the finger pointing that took place in the last election, that Georgia's voting process was deemed to be an integral process, that the integrity was not damaged, that the, that, that there was not that the, the accusations of fraud were unfounded. So the fact that this now is being discussed and this wiping this out and, and recreating our voting process is very disturbing. Anytime I think state government tries to, to preempt local government, um, that just makes me scratch my head and, and, and wonder why, especially when it was determined that there was not voter fraud. And, um, you know, to make the, um, you know, talk about the drop boxes, I think that's just an excellent point. Uh, and, and the food it, that took nothing away from anyone, but it enabled those that wanted to be, um, part of this voting process to be part of this process in a way that was comfortable to them and safe to them. And so to remove that, what benefit does that offer to anybody? I don't see a benefit of removal. So, um, it's just very disturbing. Uh, I think that, um, you know, many times our legislators get to Atlanta and they forget that there's the rest of the state. There is Atlanta and the metro area and then there's the rest. of it. And so, uh, you know, and, and, and this is one of the reasons I love living in South Georgia. It's a small community. Uh, everyone kind of knows each other. I've, I've referenced before that we're sort of like a little bit like Mayberry. And uh, and I love that. And um, I think our, our local team has done a very good job with our elections process.
1: And Mayor Julie Smith the fact that sometimes people seem to forget about South Georgia is one of the reasons we like so much having you as a panelist on the show. Greg <laughs> uh, Greg the, Greg, the, the other uh, uh, measure that's still in the bill that could have an impact on on places like Tift County is it it would if it's passed it would forbid local election boards from taking grants from nonprofit organizations to help pay for uh, their elections
3: yeah and I'm not sure if that provision is going to end up making it um, but that would be that's another issue that, that local officials have warned about Republicans, Democrats, nonpartisan alike um, because it, it, it is factored in the last few elections um, especially when you're when you're facing challenges like the pandemic. but what we've seen regardless of these different versions of legislation we're starting to see a consensus among Republicans at least about what they're going to push for. We always knew, some form of ID requirements were supported by Kemp, by Duncan, and by Ralston. We always knew that would happen. We also knew for a long time that that they did not also support um, either publicly or privately these severe limits on how to vote by absentee. So uh, that, as much fire and fury, and, and of course we covered it from from top to bottom, but. Um, that never seemed like it was going to make it in the final version. And we're sure to see some other points of consensus um, that could affect um, in more minor ways. But one of them is um, requiring runoff four weeks after Election Day instead of nine weeks. So it's some people call it the give, give me back my Christmas bill, but no more <laughs> January, uh, January 5th type runoffs after uh, after very tight November elections.
1: Yeah. You know, Greg, you certainly recall, although I think maybe you were still at university when it and when we had three week runoff periods and nobody seemed those were changed because a federal court said, look, you're not yeah. giving overseas voters, military voters enough time to cast their runoff ballots. But the three week voting period never seemed to be a particularly major issue until the court stepped in.
3: Not at all. And other states, including other states in the South, have those three three or four week. Yeah. Um, and now technology has improved. And so it's easier now for for military members overseas to cast ballots. So there's a whole slew of changes that won't get as much notice, but will have dramatic impact um, on 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 day to day voting.
1: Um, We've got to get to a break, but I want to before we move away from voting, because there are a couple other matters in the legislature, I'd love to have you all uh, weigh in. You know, um, Riley. The New York Times reported the other day. Um, they've done a couple, they've done a lot of reporting on voting restrictions in, in Southern legislatures. Uh, but they reported the other day that uh, Jeremy Peters wrote the piece saying that restricting early voting, bills to restrict early voting that are being promoted in state legislatures around the country, are what G- Republicans now see as the article describes it the new center of gravity. Republicans, after the 2020 election, after the charges of fraud by Donald Trump repeated over and over again, rather than talking about restricting abortion, rather than talking about LGBTQ uh, uh, rights being too broad and uh, overreaching, Republicans now see uh, cheating in voting and trying to fix it as the best way to raise money and rally their base. I think that's fascinating, Riley.
0: Well, absolutely, because, you know, who created this as the center of gravity? Former President Donald Trump made this the issue um, by hammering it home that all these false allegations of voter fraud before voters even cast their ballot, right? So Republican lawmakers, now that if they had stepped up and kind of on to those allegations, they have to act. You know, they can't, they can't, You know, support all these ideas of voter fraud and then not see any movement constituents are going to notice that. And I think another interesting point that that article um, had was that this is not really a long-term game plan, right? This This may not help them out in the long term to make these reactive measures right now. They should really be focusing on changes in the electorate. You know, Atlanta's changing political climate. They they need to win over this diversifying electorate. So this may hurt them in the long run, but it is not surprising that this is the new
2: issue.
1: Julie, uh, as we go to break, our good friend on this show, Professor Ellen Abramowitz, has pointed out over and over again that data show that Republican efforts to restrict voting is going to do nothing to change the voting patterns what Republicans really need to be doing is looking at demographics and following the demographics, which is basically the point Riley's making.
2: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and that's it's, it's disappointing when our elected officials don't hear the voice of the constituents. It's almost as if your voice doesn't matter. We, we are smarter than, we, we know more. We're, we'll handle this. You just go down there to your little city or your town or whatever, and we'll let you know what to do. Um, There are so many issues across this country that we need and across our state and across our region that that our elected officials need to be responsive to. And voting is not. And and the process of voting, in my opinion, is not one of them. But but to Riley's point, they were kind of forced in the corner. They had to do something. So here we are dealing with it.
1: All right. we got to get to a break. Uh, We will have more uh, when we come back.
4: Thanks for listening to
3: Political Rewind.
1: Tifton, Georgia Mayor Julie Smith, Democratic consultant Jeremiah Olney, CNHI State House reporter Riley Bunch, and our good friend Greg Bluestein of the AJC uh, are all with us for today's show. Greg, I'll start this with you, and I, I'm really eager to hear what Mayor Smith has to say about this as well. There, there are two measures, really, that seem to me to be kind of companion pieces, in a, in a way, philosophically at least, that are still under consideration down there. One of them is a bill. That would punish any city, municipality, that cuts its law enforcement budget by more than 5% in a given cycle. Um, and, and it strikes me as a bill which is designed almost solely as a reaction to the, uh, uh, to the, to the calls last summer for defunding the police, but it really hamstrings. I mean, it really puts local communities in a difficult position, Greg.
3: It really does. And it's a reaction to something that didn't happen in Georgia. I mean, we, we wrote a lot about the, the political calls um, from Republicans who were rallying against the defund the police movement. But this was nothing that was seriously uh, embraced in Georgia whatsoever. Um, and in fact, um, you know, John Ossoff said something about uh, when he was running for for Senate, said something about tying more uh, police funding to accountability, not, not calling for police defunding. Um, but over the next few months, David Perdue, Senator David Perdue, relentlessly hammered him, saying that falsely accusing him of wanting to defund the police. So this is a reaction to something um, that isn't being talked about. Well, we've seen this over and over again. We saw this uh, a few years ago with with state restrictions on Sharia law. Again, nothing that was being talked about seriously by any local city governments or county governments at all, but was a very easy sort of political point to make. And it's also one more thing to note, it's being supported by, uh, sponsored by State Representative Houston Gaines, who is now thinking about running for Congress up in Northeast Georgia, Jody Heiss's seat. So this is something that he could certainly campaign on in that very conservative district. Mayor Smith? Yeah,
2: you know, um, again, preemption of of local decisions is is never of benefit, uh, not to the local government and certainly not to the state. And um, as Greg said, this was never anything that was debated uh, across our state. Uh, I think there's significant support for law enforcement and public safety. So I think sometimes local issues end up on the um, agenda with our House and Senate friends and And uh, that's really not where that debate should take place. I think it should be up to the local government to make those decisions because we are obligated to have balanced budgets. We are, um, you know, our communities uh, just look to us to determine uh, public safety and policy and those types of things. So uh, to have the state mandate what I can do in Tifton, Georgia, with our city council or with our Tift County Commission on our sheriff's side, um, it's is, is that preemption that doesn't do anyone any benefit. So I would uh, hope that this does not uh, move forward and, and does not pass.
1: You know, Jeremiah, I said that I thought there were two bills that sort of run together. Um, the other one is a bill that would make it a felony for protesters to block a highway during a demonstration. And, and I think of them as kind of companion measures because they both seem to me to be responses to the demonstrations last year that called for defunding police, and that in some cases, and certainly in the city of Atlanta, where people did in fact block a highway.
4: Yeah, I completely agree with you that these are companion pieces. I mean, these are part of a broader trend of what we've seen as what I would describe as Republican over in the state, and really a trend that's been taking place nationally since at least the 1994 crime bill and certainly well before that as well. I mean, Georgia has the highest rate by far in the country of people under correctional control. I mean, that makes it hard to get jobs. It makes it hard to find new opportunities. Republicans, rather than trying to fix that problem, are trying to create more problems where there don't need to be any and not only create more problems, but infringe on people's First Amendment rights to do it. And I want to touch on the police funding bill a little bit, too, because a lot of municipalities, especially the bigger municipalities throughout the state, the police budget is already an overwhelming portion of their general fund. I mean, in a city like Atlanta, you have hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent on the police every year, which is more than is spent on a lot of other municipal services and community services. And I think what we see is that we expect police to serve in so many roles for which they're not trained. They are not just, you know, peacekeepers, but they're also like the first people to respond to mental health crises, things that they are not trained at all to handle. When we put all of this money into the police and we don't look at new ways to fund services that would actually reduce the need for police, like mental health services, even just basic things like food and shelter. People commit crimes the vast majority of the time, not because they want to or because it's fun, but because they feel desperate and they don't have any other option. And when we don't invest in things to give them other options, we're not actually solving the problem. And funding more police or keeping current funding for police is never going to solve those problems. And neither is ever criminalization. Riley?
0: Yeah. And, you know, um, I would just like to point out, we we thought this bill was not moving forward before crossover day. It did not get out of committee. It was not heard. So it just kind of plays into, you know, anything can come up in these final days of the legislative (laughs) session. But also, you know, another provision within that bill that I think really goes and plays back to this idea of local control is that counties and local governments would also be on the hook, you know, liable for damages or injury during protests. Um, And, you know, and that really puts them in a terrible, terrible spot. They have to basically choose between their residents having their right to assembly and right to free speech and, you know, keep protecting themselves from a possible lawsuit. And, you know, it's just this pattern of local control that we're seeing, you know, usurping local control that we're seeing over and over again. We're seeing it with the police budget. We're seeing it in the voting bills. You know, it's just it's a trend that we're seeing this session. And I think that's an important provision to point out that's in there.
1: Greg, um, give you the last word on uh, this segment. I, it's just there are any number of – I think Riley made a really important point. If you're covering the Capitol, these are the days you've really got to be on your toes. <laughs> because yeah. bills you yeah. thought were dead a week ago suddenly find a way back to life. <laughs>
3: Zombie bills, Franken-bills. I mean, you
1: have all sorts of names for it. But
3: nothing is over until that final gavel is struck probably after midnight on, 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 March 31st. So uh, we've got a, a ways ahead of us. And, um, you know, a lot of this attention will be soaking soaked up with the voting bills. Um, but there's so many other pieces of legislation that aren't getting nearly as much attention, but it could have fast ramifications on, on how we live and work.
1: All right. Greg Bluestein gets final word for this segment. We've got to take a break when we come back. I'd love to talk about the fact that, uh, The 2022 uh, election cycle is already, already stirring up some dust. We'll talk about that after these messages. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Quick uh, program note before we continue. Uh, Obviously, guns are back in the news in a big way after the massage parlor shootings here in Georgia, after the Colorado King Super shootings uh, day before yesterday. Tomorrow on Political Rewind, we're gonna turn our attention to looking at gun laws. Uh, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, former head of Injury Prevention and Control at the Centers for Disease Control back in the 90s was actually fired from his job back then in a very high profile manner when he refused to stop doing gun research, which he felt was essential to uh, getting a sense of how guns were making an impact on uh, society here. And uh, he continues to be engaged in that. And he'll be joined by the former Chief Justice of the Arkansas Arkansas State Supreme Court, Justice Betty Dickey, whose uh, former late husband was a first Republican a member of Congress who was a strong advocate of guns and became a convert and began working with Mark Rosenberg on how to do a better job creating gun safety measures. That will be on our show tomorrow, and i'm really looking forward to that conversation. One other quick note we 're not going to talk about it today, but it's a show for the future. It happens that today is equal pay day, and I think that's important to point out that we we have this day every day it's happened since nineteen I think ninety Three. This is the day on which women finally make as much money as white men made through 2020. That's what the gap is here on March 24th. Uh, white women make $0.82 cents on the dollar compared to men. Black women make $0.63 cents on the dollar compared to white men. And Latinas, $0.55. Cents on the dollar this is a subject we want to explore on this show uh, uh, because it's an important uh, uh, thing to talk about in terms of how women are treated in the workplace all right we will do that at some point moving forward on political rewind but i thought it was important to mention that at least uh today greg Bluestein. so like you had a great piece in the jolt the other day i think you were you and maybe patricia murphy worked on it together um so Let's let's talk about what's happening with the 2022 election cycle. Jody Heiss, Congressman Jody Heiss, has now said he's going to run. Uh, in, he's going to primary Brad Raffensperger, and President Trump, former President Trump, has already endo- endorsed Jody Heiss because Brad Raffensperger is public enemy number one, two, or three, depending on the day <laughs> of the week. For depending Trump. on the day. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> At the same time. Uh, Vernon Jones, the Democrat, turned to Republican, one of Trump's most vociferous supporters, uh, who thought he might be running for Secretary of State. You're now reporting he's talking about primarying Governor Kemp uh, next year. This is get what a crazy situation for Republicans. And don't forget pro-Trumpers who could, pro-Trump candidates who could end up
3: primarying or challenging uh, Jeff Duncan, Lieutenant Governor, and maybe Attorney General Chris Carr. Um, but look, you know, in the pantheon of Republicans who, cause the gov- governor can figures he's going to face some sort of Republican challenger. And in the pantheon of Republicans who could face him, I'm sure he likes the draw against Vernon Jones, um, who <laughs> was once vilified by Republicans when he was the cab CEO back when he was a Democrat. He only just switched parties a few weeks ago. Um, and voted against the anti-abortion measure, the heartbeat law, that that was so important to to Governor Kemp during the on the campaign trail. Uh, voted for election changes that he's now criticizing, including the Dominion voting machines, and is just not necessarily as much as he's he's held up by the pro-Trump crowd. He's not necessarily <laughs> a a standing figure in Republican circles. I think that's that's to put it mildly. So um, so I, I, he is. You know, going on Newsmax, he went on Newsmax last night. He has been tweeting all sorts of, of you know, very popular things in the Republican and conservative movement. You know, just kind of uh, slogans and things like that that are getting lots of retweets and likes. Um, but when, it, when when it comes down to it, if Governor Kemp has to face Vernon Jones rather than I don't know, Bert Jones or another conservative um, with with a longer reputation in the party, I think I think he'd he'd be okay with this draw.
1: Um- Yeah, I think that one of the reasons that I mentioned that has to do primarily with this long, strange trip that Vernon Jones has been on politically, not that he necessarily will be a viable candidate against Brian Kemp. Uh, Julie Smith, you are essentially, uh, I mean, you are the Republican on the panel. I mean, again, you are a nonpartisan mayor. You run in a nonpartisan election, but but you consider yourself to be a Republican Republican. Um, when you look at wh- what's happening with the map for, and, and possible matchups, um, how troubled are you about the split between those pro-Trump people, folks mm-hmm. like Jeff Duncan, who's decided he's going to be a GOP 2.0 kind of guy, opposing Trump's philosophy? How does, where does that put someone like you, who's pretty mild-mannered and moderate in your thinking?
2: Right. Well, you know, we were all kind of chatting before the show started. I said it's just a continuation of the nightmare, and it, and it really feels that way. Um, I've just never seen anything um, that has divided an organization or a group of people kind of like this has. And it's really unfortunate. Uh, like I said earlier, there are so many issues that we should be focused on, uh, whether you liked Trump or you didn't like Trump or you supported Trump or you didn't support Trump. That, 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 that's kind of behind us now. And, um, you know, it, it, but it continues to divide our, our state and our country, and it's just really disappointing. So, um, you know, I've, I've always kind of laughed and joked with my friends. I'm either a very conservative Democrat or a very liberal Republican. <laughs> I don't know, but, but I, I, feel like I, I feel like I identify with those people who are much more moderate, like you said, that you have the far left and the far right. But then there's the rest of the world that's kind of in the middle, and that's um, that's where I, you know, I, I see my community being. Um, we are, much more, I think, a conservative part of the state, but at the same time, a very realistic part of the state. So it's um, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to watch. But it's really disappointing the divisiveness that
4: it's creating.
1: Jeremiah, uh, what is a Democrat uh, observing, watching all of this unfold?
4: I mean, I would prefer... I'm feeling glee on a daily basis, just about, just because Brian Kemp at the peak of the pandemic last summer had rock bottom approval ratings, 50 of 50 in the country for any governor. Then you get into this year and you see Georgia once again, and this is shameful. We are 50 of 50 in terms of first shots and arms for the vaccine. And also he doesn't have the sort of base of support from Trump like he did in uh, the last election cycle in 2018, because he's made an enemy of him. So he's gone from being sort of a pariah in terms of national governors to now being a pariah for his own base. I honestly don't know like, where any significant support for him comes from these days. Most Republicans are, most Republican primary voters are still kind of on the Trump train, and he can try and get on that train again. But Trump has made it very, very clear that Kemp is public enemy number one at this point. There's nothing Kemp can say or do to undo the results of the 2020 election. So I think Kemp has two problems. One, I frankly, I don't predict that he's going to make it out of his primary uh, next year, I don't think he's going to win his primary. Uh, if it's Vernon Jones, I think we'll be a little bit closer, but I think we'll see many more people than Vernon Jones enter the Republican primary for governor next year. And then I think as we anticipate seeing Stacey Abrams run again in 2022, after the results we saw with Biden and Warnock and Ossoff this year, I frankly don't see any way Georgia has a Republican governor come 2023. Mm-hmm. Riley?
0: You know, I think this is what's making Georgia such an an interesting place to watch across the country. Right. We have this such this division and such a huge split in the state GOP, which, you know, not a lot of other states do. A lot of states, their state GOP are still backing Trump and very, very loyal to Trump. But we're seeing this huge split here. And I think, you know, this may permeate across more um, different levels of government, you know, not just state officials. We've seen a little bit of, of the inter-party fighting on the statehouse level between those who support the the voting restrictions and those who don't support the voting restrictions. You know, there is definitely the very very strong pro-Trump candidates running for Congress. I think we're going to see this pro-Trump versus you know the GOP that wants to move on split for a really really long time, and you know, in Georgia to come.
1: Greg, I think um, that. Jeff Duncan, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, is really the interesting guy to watch in all of this, because whereas Brad Raffensperger has sort of had it both ways, he did stand up to Trump when it came to calling the election a fraud. He said, no, it was an honest election. Raffensperger still says he supports Trump uh, and did last year. He said, I voted for him. Raffensperger's been kind of on uh, both sides of some of the election bills that have come through here. But Jeff Duncan has taken a stand. He is anti-Trump. He's anti these election bills. He wants to start GOP 2.0. His future is really going to be interesting to watch.
3: Yeah, and I did a piece about him a couple of days ago, But um, he and he is not wanting to talk publicly. Other than saying he's not running for U.S. Senate, he is not wanting to talk about what his plans are for next year even. So it's an open question whether or not he runs uh, again. Um, he hasn't said he won't run again but still look people are lining up to challenge him as well we already have at least one activist from Savannah but there'll be many many others who will run run, run against him um, uh, if he chooses to run again but you're right he is he is probably the Republican in the establishment who has broken furthest with President Trump and uh, his talk about GOP 2.0 um, what that means for the party going future going forward a focus on you know, uh, ec- economics and tax cuts and, you know, uh, going back to what the party was pre-Trump. I'm not sure what sort of um, energy and enthusiasm there is for that message right now in the Republican Party. Um, you know, I did a story a couple of days before that about how Trump still continues to have unequaled <laughs> power and influence despite his, his, his defeat in Georgia Republican circles.
1: Is he still the man down your way? Mayor Smith,
2: yeah. <laughs> you put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, it, it, it's amazing. It's Trump, those that support Trump, the man can do no wrong. His supporters are such ardent supporters. Um, I think it's split fifty-fifty. I think I think what's happening in our neck of the woods is, is what's happening, you know, across the Republican Party. So I think it's I think it's half and half. um... I kind of well, like what, well, what a, I'm hearing it from Duncan. I think that's, that's an exciting future for the Republicans.
1: I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. We are completely yes, out of time, at, and, and I, I appreciate I, – I know it's tough to be a Republican coming on this show sometimes, and I get that. So, so thank you, Mayor Julie Smith, for being uh, with us today. Riley Bunch, I hope you get through this last four days, three days, whatever it is of the session, and then have a chance to rest up a bit. Uh, Jeremiah Olney, good luck down to the Capitol with the work that you're doing down there for your clients. Thank you for your uh, presence on the show today. And Greg Bluestein, get back to work on that book, darn it. We can't wait to uh, see it uh, sometime, we hope, maybe this fall. Uh, that's it for today's show. We're completely out of time. Again, we'll talk about guns on tomorrow's Political Rewind. Until then, I'm Bill Niggott. Take care. Stay healthy. Keep wearing your masks and go out there and try to find a vaccine if you haven't already gotten it. Now's the time to do it. See y'all.